You're listening to Understanding Sin and Evil. Dr. Miriam Brand on the Bible, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Ancient World. Learn more at understandingsin.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Understanding Sin and Evil. Today, we're going to talk about the Book of Jubilees, The Watchers, and where a new character called Mastema comes in. But really today we're going to focus on the Watchers in the Book of Jubilees. Now, of course, I'm first going to introduce the Book of Jubilees, and then we'll see how the story of the Watchers kind of develops in the Book of Jubilees, what the Book of Jubilees does with the story of the Watchers. Now, as I mentioned last time, the author of the Book of Jubilees has read the Book of the Watchers in Enoch and is doing new things or is integrating other ideas and issues to this story in an attempt to deal with this problem of sin and evil. So what is Jubilees? Jubilees is a book that is attempting to retell the story of Genesis until the giving of the Torah in Exodus, or I should say the giving of the commandments at Mount Sinai, at Har Sinai in Exodus. And so Jubilees presents itself as the secret book that the angels gave to Moses, to Moshe, on Mount Sinai. As such, Jubilees is an example of what we call rewritten Bible. It's a retelling of the biblical story. And as such, it's a form of biblical interpretation, much more so than, say, the Book of Enoch. The Book of Enoch kind of took Enoch as a jumping off point from certain verses in the Bible, but then it becomes really its own book. But Jubilees keeps coming back to the biblical story and interprets it for us. How do we have the Book of Jubilees? The Book of Jubilees was translated into Greek and then was translated from Greek into Ethiopic and was kept by the Ethiopian church, like the Book of Enoch. As such, it is part of the Pseudepigrapha. Now, again, it's not part of the Apocrypha because the Apocrypha were kept by the Alexandrian Jewish community. Jubilees was too weird for the Alexandrian Jewish community to keep it. It was, however, kept by some Jews and then translated into Greek and kept by some Christians in the Ethiopian, and in particular became prominent in the Ethiopian church. So we have it in its Ethiopic translation. It was actually written, though, around 160 to 150 BCE. That is after the Hasmonean victory, after the victory of the Maccabees during the Maccabean revolt. Just an aside, how do we date these books? When we say, well, we only have it in an Ethiopian translation of the Greek translation of the Hebrew. Jubilees was originally in Hebrew, unlike the Book of the Watchers, which was originally in Aramaic. How in the world, if we only have a translation of a translation, how can we date this thing? And the answer is what people usually do is they look at the book. First of all, they have to see, is this book a whole? In the case of Jubilees, this book works as a whole book, as opposed to, for example, the book of Enoch, which we need to divide into several different books, and then we date each book separately. In, book, in the book of Jubilees, we would date the book of Jubilees as a whole. Whenever an ancient work predicts the future, as so many books from the Second Temple period do, 
we date them according to when their prediction goes wrong. So usually they're, they are historically accurate up to a certain point. They present themselves as being from far in the past. They then predict the future, quote unquote, up until the author's present day, and then continue farther into the apocalyptic end time. So here, the apocalyptic end time follows shortly after essentially the Hasmonean victory. And therefore, that's where we can date the Book of Jubilees to. We also can look at some of the primary messages of the Book of Jubilees. So for example, there's a real dislike of foreign rule. There's a polemic against certain practices that were common in the Hellenistic world, like nudity, homosexuality. And so it works. So there's no reason to say that it is actually not from this period. It all works out. It really reads like something that was written following the Hasmonean victory in 160 to 150 BCE. Some other interesting points about Jubilees. Why is it called the Book of Jubilees? Well, it is retelling the history from Genesis through Exodus, or not through Exodus, but up to the point where the commandments are given at Sinai. But it's telling them in jubilees of years. So it will say during the first week. During the first week means during the first seven years. During the first Shemitah. The first set of Shemitah years. And then, of course, you have jubilees, which is seven sets of Shemitah years. Now, an interesting point, and this was made um, a long time ago by, by Jim Vanderkam in his work on jubilees, that the way that jubilees works out its calendar is that during the Jubilee of Jubilees, in other words, during the the 50 years that is kind of the Jubilee 50 years, that those 50 years include both the exodus from Egypt and coming to the land. If you recall, the Jews wandered for 40 years in the desert, so that 50 years includes the exodus, the wandering, and coming to the land. And thus, that Jubilee of Jubilees, in the way that the Book of Jubilees retells history, includes both features of the Jubilee, namely freeing of slaves and the redeeming of land. So both of those are in the Jubilee of Jubilees, particularly pertaining to the Jewish people. So Jubilees is a very interesting book, and it also is based on a solar calendar. The author of the Book of Jubilees was also a proponent of the solar calendar, if you're just joining me now, be sure to listen to the last episode where I talk a little bit more about why Jews of the period started to like the solar calendar and prefer it to the lunar solar calendar. Now, not most Jews of the period, but certain Jews of the period, certain groups of Jews started to think that the solar calendar is better and therefore must be the original calendar. The author of Jubilees is one of these. And Jubilees was an important work at Qumran. It's actually quoted authoritatively at Qumran. And it was apparently important to other Jews as well. So it had the, it's it was not written at Qumran. And there are and it how do we know it wasn't written at Qumran? Well, most specifically it lacks certain sectarian language that we really find deeply embedded in Qumran documents. And there are certain ideas that are important to it that are less important to, at Qumran, even though it doesn't really go against Qumran ideas. It really reads like something that belonged to a much larger group of Jews. However, it was an, an unusual book. Certain groups of Jews clearly read it 
probably read it authoritatively, but it was weird enough to not even get to the Alexandrian Jews and not even make it into their Bible. Now, while we can read Jubilees as a single book, as a single work, there is a certain amount of editing or what we call redaction involved. In other words, there are places where the author seems to be combining different accounts, maybe even different texts, into his overall work. And we're going to see how this plays out with the Watcher's account within Jubilees. Now, I mentioned that Jubilees is a retelling of the biblical story from Genesis, and as such, it does include the story of Adam and Eve. However, as we would expect from knowing a little bit about Second Temple literature, it does not see Adam and Eve as a particular source of sin. It retells the story, but they are not a source of sin. It's actually interesting in Jubilees, the story of Adam and Eve's sin primarily explains why animals don't speak and why humans must wear clothing. And the story of Cain and Abel, of Cain and Hevel, emphasizes the prohibition against beating another human being and the requirement to bear witness if one sees an act of violence. So it has an interesting take on both those stories. However, neither story is considered to explain the origin of sin in any way. Again, this should not surprise us, given what we know about Second Temple literature. By the way, before I continue, another interesting point in Jubilees, which we will only briefly touch on later, is that one of the things that Jubilees does is it takes laws that are familiar as biblical law and puts them earlier in the biblical story. So they'll say how certain of the patriarchs kept certain Jewish holidays. And that's one of the things the author wants to do is show just how early these commandments are. It's possible that this was actually a response to what we see in 1 Maccabees, where in 1 Maccabees it says that there were some Jews who say, these commandments that keep us separate from the other nations, let's go back to the way it was before. In other words, these are new things that are keeping us from the other nations. And the idea of Jubilees is to show you that no, 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 these commands aren't new. They are so old, in fact, that the patriarchs kept them. And so it, it shows the origin of various Jewish holidays to be from different patriarchs. Now, of course, this is something we see in rabbinic literature as well. When we learn about you know, the morning prayer came from Abraham, the afternoon prayer came from Isaac from Yitzchak, the evening prayer came from Yaakov, from Jacob. The, the idea of that is to say that, this, that these commandments or these practices are so early and so kind of basic to the Jewish people that they, that they originate from the time of the patriarchs. So I'm going to start with reading the first place where we see the story of the Watchers in the Book of Jubilees. And that is in chapter 4. Verse 15, he named him Jared, Yared, right? Because during his lifetime, the angels of the Lord who were called watchers descended to earth. Listen to this. Descended to earth to teach mankind and to do what is just and upright upon the earth. Okay, so let's unpack that a bit. First of all, the angels of the Lord go down during the time of Jared of Yared because of the etymological connection between Yared, to go down, Laredet, Yerad, Yerdu. 
So the angels went down during that time. That's why he's named Yared. And that's actually also found in the Book of the Watchers, according to the Greek manuscript. But what's interesting is that here, these watchers who go down in those days are actually not doing anything wrong. I'm going to read that to you again. The angels of the Lord who were called watchers descended to earth to teach mankind and to do what is just and upright upon the earth. They're sent by God to teach humans and to do good things. This is actually a reinterpretation to get rid of Asael's sin. Remember when I said in the last episode that it's very unusual to see this idea of evil knowledge, of bad knowledge, which is what we saw in the Book of the Watchers, that Asael taught things that were bad. And Shemichaza taught mysteries that were also evil. In general, in most Second Temple works, knowledge and even knowledge of mysteries is a good thing. So here, the author is acknowledging that the watchers came down and taught, but that was good. God wanted them to teach something. The sin has not occurred yet. There's another point to this in that any sinning that happens starts on earth. In other words, the watchers don't see human women from heaven and then sin. No, 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 no. There is no connection between heaven and sin. There could only be sinning on earth. So the watchers come down for perfectly legitimate reasons to do good things, and any sinning only comes later. In Jubilees 5 is when we actually see an account of the watchers' sin. And it came to pass, when the children of men began to multiply in the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the angels of God saw them on a certain year of this jubilee, that they were beautiful to look upon, and they took themselves wives of all whom they chose, and they bare unto them sons, and they were giants." Now, this is actually pretty close to the biblical account of for reading B'nai Elohim as angels. And, but here's where the, the sin starts. So again, they, they saw that they were beautiful to look upon, and they took themselves wives of all whom they chose, and they bare unto them sons, and they were giants. And then what happens? Wickedness increased on the earth. All flesh corrupted its way, every one of them from people to cattle, animals, birds, and everything that moves about on the ground. All of them corrupted their way and their established order. They began to devour one another, and wickedness increased on the earth. Every thought of all mankind's knowledge was evil like this all the time. Now note how immediately we're connected to the flood. Human's thoughts are evil all the time, and that will immediately lead to the reason for the flood, as it does in the Bible. What happens? As soon as there's this crossing of boundaries, angels are marrying human women and having giants, then everything starts leaving its established order. They began to devour one another, and wickedness increased on the earth. Every thought, again, every thought of all mankind's knowledge was evil like this all the time. What verse is that reflecting? It's an interpretation of Genesis 6, 5, where every inclination of the thoughts of man's heart is described as evil throughout the day. It's v'chol yetzer machshavot libo rak ra kol hayom. Right? And here 
this is being interpreted as an immediate effect of what the Watchers did. They went against the cosmic order. All humans and all animals kind of caught it from them and started going against the established order. And humans' thoughts became evil all the time. The Lord saw that the earth was corrupt, that all flesh had corrupted its established order, and that all of them, everyone that was on the earth, had acted wickedly before his eyes. So here, in this account, it's very, very clear that the watcher's sin immediately causes evil and sin among both humans and animals, which immediately leads to the flood. And how have they caused this evil? As opposed to the book of Enoch, the book of the Watchers that we read in Enoch, where the evil, the sin is caused by knowledge. And it's quite clear, actually, why this would cause sin. In this case, we don't really know how they cause sin. It seems to be that once you have gone against your established order, particularly if you're an angel, you, you go against the established order, they've kind of caused a domino effect of everyone else going against the established order. Now, in Jubilees 5, 6 to 10, the Watcher's giant offspring are, in fact, connected to the flood. However, in this account, the giants and their spirits don't survive the flood. Like in First Enoch, in the Book of the Watchers, chapters 10 to 11, the giants and their spirits don't survive the flood. The flood is the end of the consequences of the Watcher's sin. And in fact, we have the moral at the, end, at the end of Jubilees 5. The judgment of them all has been ordained and written on the heavenly tablets. There is no injustice. As for all who transgress from their way, in which it was ordained for them to go, if they do not go in it, judgment has been written down for each creature and for each kind. That's in 513 of Jubilees. So, in the account in chapter 5, we have the sin, we have the consequences, which leads to the flood, but the punishment of the angels and of their giant children is absolute. It's over. No more consequences. And then we have a little moral. This is what's going to happen to anyone who leaves their, their divine, divinely ordained path. Remember when I said last week that Jubilees is very involved with the law and with keeping of the law? And yet, the author is clearly reading the Book of the Watchers in, in Enoch. So uh, this is one of the many places where we're reminded that we need to keep the law and keep the divinely ordained path. By the way, the divinely ordained path here is not determinism. It simply means that we have to follow the divine commandments. In, however, in Jubilee 7, we have a different view. Now, remember when I said that the author of Jubilees integrated different accounts and possibly even different texts in his work. So it's not that big a surprise. We shouldn't be too shocked that Jubilee 7 presents a completely different view of what happens following the flood. So in Jubilee 7.20, Noah transmits all the commandments that he knows to his sons and grandsons. He teaches his sons to do what is right. He tells them to cover the shame of their bodies, to bless God, to honor their parents, to love each other, and to keep themselves from fornication, impurity, and from all violence. And then the narrator explains, For it was on account of these three things that the flood was on the earth, since it was due to fornication that the watchers had illicit intercourse, apart from the mandate of their authority, with women. 
When they married of them, whomever they chose, they committed the first acts of impurity. They fathered as their sons the Nephilim. They were all dissimilar from one another and would devour one another. The giant killed the Nephil, the Nephil killed the Elio, the Elio, mankind, and people, their fellows. If we remember these three types of descendants of the Watchers, the giant, the Nephil, and the Elio, correspond to the three generations of descendants of the Watchers that we had in the Book of the Watchers in Enoch. When everyone sold himself to commit violence and to shed innocent blood, the earth was filled with violence. After them, all the animals, birds, and whatever moves about and whatever walks on the earth, much blood was shed on the earth. All the thoughts and wishes of mankind were devoted to thinking up what was useless and wicked all the time. Then the Lord obliterated all from the surface of the earth because of their actions and because of the blood which they had shed in the earth. Now, this is a pretty clear-cut repetition of what we just read in Jubilees 5. However, there's an emphasis on bloodshed. Whenever, when everyone sold himself to commit violence and to shed innocent blood, and then it ends with, then the Lord obliterated all from the surface of the earth because of their actions and because of the blood which they had shed in the earth. And the three sins, again, that led to the flood are fornication, which was intercourse with human women, impurity, which was illicit marriage with these women, which are both perpetrated by the Watchers themselves, and then the violence is caused by the giant offspring of the Watchers. So the sin of the Watchers has repercussions for all of humanity. Now the actions of the Watchers here are supposed to be offset by the commandments that Noah is giving to his children. And he actually explains that these commandments, the law, has a specific purpose. It's meant to prevent bloodshed. I'm reading now from 726. We, I and you, my children, and everything that entered the ark with us were left. Because Noah is speaking to them after the flood. But now I am the first to see your actions, that you have not been conducting yourselves properly because you have begun to conduct yourselves in the way of destruction, to separate from one another, to be jealous of one another, and not to be together with one another, my sons. For I myself see that the demons have begun to lead you and your children astray. And now I fear regarding you that after I have died, you will shed human blood on the earth and that you yourselves will be obliterated from the surface of the earth. For everyone who sheds human blood and everyone who consumes the blood of any flesh will all be obliterated from the earth. Now this is a very important passage to understand how Jubilees is using the story of the Watchers to explain a commandment. First of all, we do have to ask, who are these demons? All of a sudden, there are demons. There are demons who are influencing the children of Noah. Where are these demons from? Now, this passage does not actually explain where the demons are from. I didn't skip a verse or anything. There's no explanation of where these demons are from. It doesn't say here, and we're going to get a chat to a chapter which does explain. It does not say here that they are from the Watchers. However, we could easily assume that they're from the Watchers, particularly if we live during the Second Temple period, where everyone knows the story of the Watchers and knows that the Watchers are somehow to blame for human sin. So it's not too big a stretch for us to say, well, he just talked about the Watchers. He talked about how their sins and the violence of their children led to the flood. Now he sees and he's worried about his own children's violence and he says, this is going to be because demons are influencing you. For that reason, 
in Jubilee 7, 30-31, Noah gives them the commandment, the biblical prohibition of eating the blood of any slaughtered animal, of any bird, and, and they need to cover the blood of any animal. He's actually conflating two different uh, laws regarding eating the blood of a domestic animal and eating the blood of a wild animal. They're both prohibited, but with a wild animal, you cover the blood, and with a domestic animal, you sacrifice the blood. Now again, what biblical prohibition is this? This is the biblical prohibition that we find given to Noah in Genesis 9-4, and he's combining the injunctions given to to Moses, to Moshe, in uh, in Leviticus, in Vayikra, in Deuteronomy, in Devarim. So all those are kind of conflated here, and he's giving them this rule, the biblical injunction, not to eat blood, which is in fact given to Noah in the Bible. But here it's very clear that this biblical injunction of not eating blood is supposed to help them resist the influence of demons toward bloodshed. This is very interesting because actually this is something we see across the board in Second Temple literature. And I've mentioned this before, that the law battles sin. There's an idea that if there are demons that influence you to, to sin, or if you have an internal evil inclination, somehow, in a metaphysical sense, the law fights this inclination to sin. So how? So if Noah is seeing his children influenced by demons to do violence, it makes a lot of sense in that mindset to say, well, of course, Noah had to give them this prohibition of eating blood. This will save them from the sin of bloodshed. Now, of course, this is not coming out of nowhere. This is coming based on the biblical prohibition to Noah that from now on his children should not eat blood. And, of course, the biblical prohibition to Noah, by the way, is because now they're allowed to eat animals. Before the flood, humans are apparently not allowed to eat animals. After the flood, there's a specific commandment. Now you can eat animals, but you cannot eat their blood. Now, note how much is still in the control of human beings in this passage. Frequently when people talk about demons, they speak about it in, in terms of demons taking over. In modern, in modern parlance, when people speak now and say, oh, a demon is influencing him, a lot of times it's a way of kind of distancing the person from free will. Well, he doesn't have control. He's in control of the demons. Here, humans have free will. The demons may be influencing you, but you have to keep this law. If you keep this law, then you will not fall under the influence of the demons. In chapter 10, however, things are a little different. And I'm going to read to you from chapter 10. This is what happens when it doesn't work. During the third week of this jubilee, the third week meaning the third set, set of seven years, the third Shemitah of this jubilee, impure demons began to lead Noah's grandchildren astray to make them act foolishly and to destroy them. Then Noah's sons came to their father Noah and told him, about the demons who were leading astray, misleading, blinding, and killing his grandchildren. So we see the demons have managed to influence Noah's grandchildren. Who are these demons? They're called impure demons. And this is our first hint that these demons might be descended from the Watchers, who, if you remember, were guilty of impurity. So these impure demons could be the demons that were born out of the impurity perpetrated by the Watchers. In just a little while, though, of course, it becomes perfectly clear. 
Because what does Noach do then? He prays. He, Noach, prayed before the Lord his God and said, God of the spirits which are in all flesh, you who have shown kindness to me, saved me and my sons from the floodwaters, and did not make me perish as you did to the people meant for destruction, because your mercy for me has been large and your kindness to me has been great. May your mercy be lifted over the children of your children, and may the wicked spirits not rule them in order to destroy them from the earth. Now you bless me and my children so that we may increase, become numerous, and fill the earth. You know how your watchers, the fathers of these spirits, have acted during my lifetime. In other words, during my lifetime, the watchers who were the fathers of these spirits did terrible things. As for these spirits who have remained alive, aha, the spirits of their descendants have remained despite the flood. Imprison them and hold them captive in the place of judgment. May they not cause destruction among your servant's sons, my God, for they are savage and were created for the purpose of destroying. May they not rule the spirits of the living, for you alone know their punishment. And may they not have power over the sons of the righteous from now and forevermore. Now, Noah's actual prayer seems to be taken from somewhere else. Because, in other words, it seems to have been written some, written by someone else, and the author inserted it here because it uses different terminology. In the introduction, in, chap, in chapter 10, verses 1 to 2, these demons are called impure demons. Aganint Rikusan. Now, again, I apologize for my, my pronunciation of Ethiopic. So it's Aganint Rikusan. Aganint are demons. And Rikusan, impure. Rikwith is impurity. And in the body of the prayer, they're called manaf manafast equian, wicked spirits. Manafast like nefesh. Ethiopic, by the way, is a, is a Semitic language with African influence. So there's a lot of common roots in, um, in Ethiopic and in, in Hebrew and Aramaic and Arabic. Probably the closest language would be Arabic that we would, would have easy access to. So in the introduction, they're called impure demons. But in the body of the prayer, they're called wicked spirits. So this may reflect a different version of the Watcher's myth, where the mating produced not giants, but spirits. Because it doesn't explain, as Enoch did, as the Book of Enoch did, that the spirits are what remained from the giants when they died. Of course, it's also very possible that this prayer simply reflects an understanding. Everyone knew that that's how the spirits came to be. The spirits came to be because the giants' bodies died and what was left of the spirits. So you don't even have to go into that whole story. All he has to do is call them wicked spirits. Now here, the spirits rule humans. So they have this real influence over humans. And because they rule humans, humans are somewhat helpless, as opposed to in chapter 7, where humans just have to keep the law and that will somehow save them from demonic influence. Here, they are ruling humans. And so there's an appeal to God to stop them. Now we're going to see this idea in the Dead Sea Scrolls as well, this idea that you should pray to God for help against these this demonic influence. Now again, he finishes by saying, may they not rule the spirits of the living for you alone know their punishment and may they not have power over the sons of the righteous for net from now and forevermore. In response to Noah's prayer, God tells the angels to actually to bind all these spirits. So in other words, 
all these evil spirits that have descended from the Watchers will now be bound. And then we have the introduction of a totally new character. Mastema, who has not been mentioned up till this point in the Book of Jubilees, appears and alters the request. Now, we're going to talk in just a bit about who Mastema is and who he reflects, but I think you'll probably be able to guess. When Mastema, the leader of the spirits, came, he said, Lord Creator, leave some of them before me. Let them listen to me and do everything that I tell them, because if none of them is left for me, I shall not be able to exercise the authority of my will among mankind, for they are meant for the purposes of destroying and misleading before my punishment, because the evil of mankind is great. Then he said, namely God said, that a tenth of them should be left before him, while he would make nine parts descend to the place of judgment. What's going on? Here is this angel Mastema, who has a role in the angelic court. He's the leader of the spirits. And he says, no, you can't bind all of them because I need some of them. I need some of them to destroy and mislead because the evil of mankind is great. So who does Mastema sound like? Mastema sounds like a satanic character. Mastema is the leader then of a tenth of the spirits who are what's left over. Now why is he called Mastema? He's actually called the angel of Mastema frequently. And probably remember that Jubilees was originally written in Hebrew. So Malacha Mastema would be the angel of hostility. Mastema is a word we find in the book of Hosea, meaning hostility. And he's probably supposed to be understood as the angel of hostility, but when the book was translated into Greek, and then of course into Ethiopic, the name was simply transcribed. He's the angel Mastema. He's particularly like the Satan, because the Satan in the Bible, Satan in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible rather, has a role in the court, and he may cause all sorts of problems, but he is not, he doesn't, rebel against God. He's not a fallen angel. He is not Lucifer, right? Lucifer is a much later con construction. Satan is an angel with a job. And the name Satan means adversary. He has an adversarial role in the heavenly court. So does Mastema here. Mastema has an adversarial role in the court, and therefore God listens to him, and God gives him these spirits to control. Mastema is actually a fairly prominent figure in the rest of the Book of Jubilees. We're going to talk about him in a later episode when I talk about this idea of a single main evil character and what and how that idea evolves. So we have the Satan in the Hebrew Bible. We have... Mastema here in Jubilees. We have Blial. Blial actually also shows up in the beginning of Jubilees and is very prominent at Qumran. And we're going to talk late in a later episode about why one would want a single evil character as an explanation of sin. Like, what is the reason? What is this trying to explain? How does this help one's thought about evil and sin? What 
philosophical problems does this solve and what philosophical problems does it create that then need to be dealt with. But let's talk now about the Watchers and the Watchers' descendants, these spirits, these evil spirits. Why in the world would the author of Jubilees want to say that God allowed a tenth of them to exist under this evil character, Mastema? Mastema, for the rest of the book, uh, is constantly trying to do things to bring the downfall of the Israelites, but he's actually relatively easy, con- easily controlled. He's not very, um, he's not successful in what he tries. The angels, other, the good angels are able to bind him and release him at will during the exodus from Egypt. So he's, he is presented as a threat, but he's a threat that one can deal with. And that's key in understanding what's going on here with the Watchers. What idea do the Watchers represent? I should say these spirits, these evil spirits. What idea do they represent? The idea that there is chaotic evil out there. There is evil out there that we cannot control. There are all these evil spirits. They are the result of a crossing of boundaries, of divine boundaries. And that crossing of divine boundaries, which was illicit and not allowed and against all the rules of God and man, created these chaotic forces that cause both spiritual evil, but also kill. They destroy and mislead. They don't just mislead. And so this is a way of explaining why bad things happen to good people. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, there are these chaotic forces in the world that do evil. And that allows, that gives someone an explanation. Not that satisfying an explanation if you're really suffering, but an explanation that does not necessarily hurt your belief in God. But doesn't it? That's the problem that we get to very quickly because once you say that there are these chaotic forces, the question is, well, then why... How can there be chaotic forces? Doesn't the fact that there are chaotic forces, doesn't that somehow limit divine power? Even in the ancient Near East, this was an issue. In the ancient Near East, even when people believed in multiple gods, they usually believed in a system of gods. There was a divine a divine court. There, were, there was a hierarchy of gods. Gods controlled things. And yet... Alongside that, there was this belief in chaotic forces, because that explains why there could just be evil just out of nowhere, for no apparent reason. And so, as Carol Vandertorn has explained, in the Near Eastern epic Atrahasis, the demon Lamashtu, who's also called Pashitu, who was considered a chaotic demon that caused miscarriages and harm to pregnant women and babies, horrible, right? But This was a chaotic demon that people believed in and used to use incantations against. In the epic Atrahasis, she's given a reason for existing. After the flood, what is going to curb the multiplication of humans? This demon who causes miscarriages and kills babies. So the author of that epic is bringing this chaotic demon back into the theistic system, into a system of gods. Say, oh no, there's a reason for this chaotic demon. She's meant to curb human growth, to curb population growth. So it's not some chaotic thing that's running around outside of the system of gods. It's within the system of gods. However, that explanation is not accepted. We still find in the ancient Near East all sorts of incantations and amulets against this horrible demon, not 
not addressing the gods at all, simply saying, simply trying to keep this chaotic demon at bay. Similarly, here we have in Jubilees someone who is assuming that everyone knows and believes about the descendants of the Watchers. Everyone believes that these descendants cause evil. They cause sin. They cause destruction. And he's bringing them back within a divine system, within a divine order. Yes, they're evil. Yes, they're terrible. Yes, they cause destruction and sin. And yet, they are under the control of a of these angel who's part of the divine court so they're not existing outside of the divine system and yet as we'll see when we look at prayers at Qumran that address these descendants these evil descendants of the watchers this idea is not really accepted when you come to incantations and prayers in, in incantations and prayers people are not addressing Mastema as the leader of these spirits they are addressing they are they are looking at these spirits as chaotic forces and yet and yet in the prayers at Qumran they are prayers meaning they address god for help against these chaotic demons in suppressing the chaotic demons in the fight against the desire to sin so what have we seen in this overview of the watchers and jubilees first we saw a reflection of the First, we saw a reflection of a version of the Watcher story where while the Watchers act and the fact that they've, that they've broken the divine order causes widespread sin among animals and humans and thus the flood, it ends with a flood. But then we saw that there's almost an assumption that the spirits that have come out of the Watchers union, union with human women that those spirits, in fact, have survived the flood and are demonic spirits that influence people as well as destroying them. They hurt them and they influence people to sin. And we saw two approaches in terms of opposing these, this influence of demonic spirit. We actually saw, we saw two approaches to defending oneself against these demonic spirits. The first we saw was keeping the law, and we saw that through the Noahide injunction not to eat blood, and that is supposed to prevent demonic influence from leading to bloodshed among people. And the second we saw Noah's prayer, prayer to God against the influence of the Watcher's descendants. So we see these two approaches, and we're actually going to see these approaches later on mixed in a way when we look at Watchers, the Watchers story as we find it in the Dead Sea Scrolls next episode. What we won't find in the Dead Sea Scrolls, though, is a reflection of what we saw in Jubilees 10, where the spirits, these demonic spirits, are put under the rulership, you could say, of Mastema. Mastema does show up in specific places in the Dead Sea Scrolls, specifically texts that are already referring to Jubilees. However, pieces of the scrolls that reflect an, a belief in the Watcher's descendants as demonic spirits that influence people in the speaker's world, or usually are represented as, as trying to influence the speaker himself, these texts do not 
reflect an idea that Mastema has any control over these spirits or that these spirits have any sort of relationship to, to Mastema. Rather, they are looking at these spirits as chaotic forces. And that is, that is similar to what Vandertorn saw in terms of the Atrechasis epic, that the Atrechasis epic tried to bring the Pashitu demon under this kind of theistic system, tried to bring this chaotic demon into this divine system. And here we have the author of Jubilees trying to bring the evil spirits descendants of the Watchers into a divine system, into an ordered system, where Mastema, who's a member of the, of the divine court, much like the Satan, Mastema is a member of the divine court and will rule these evil demonic spirits. They're, they're not completely chaotic. However, this idea is not accepted. This, the text we will read next week show that there's still a belief in these spirits as chaotic. And again, why would one want to believe? This is something I always ask my students because frequently the modern thinker says, okay, that's just crazy. That's just nuts. Or how primitive. But in general, there's a reason for these beliefs. People hold these beliefs because it solves some kind of problem. The problem that a belief in the Watcher's descendants as evil spirits solves, the problem that that belief solves is actually twofold. One is why do bad things happen to good people? Because these chaotic spirits don't just cause sin, they also cause general evil, they hurt people. And the second is why do I want to sin? And remember, we mentioned this as one as a problem that really bothers Second Temple Jews. If God made me and God doesn't want me to sin, then why in the world do I have this desire to sin? And the answer here is because there are these chaotic, demonic spirits that are influencing me. And next week, when we read some of the prayers at Qumran that are trying to deal with trying to deal with, I would could say the belief in the spirits, but people there, they seem to be really feeling like these spirits are actually in them, fighting against essentially the laws of God. And we're going to see that this is a way of addressing one's own desire to sin. So thank you for joining me. Uh, I hope this gave you a little food for thought, and I'm looking forward to speaking with you next time. Talk to you then. You have been listening to Understanding Sin and Evil with Dr. Miriam Brand. Learn more at understandingsin.com.